Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I am privileged each week to serve as your host and interviewer. And today the budgetista is in the house. This is Tiffany Aliche, the famous coach, speaker, author, has the online school and her new book, Get Good With Money, is a number one runaway best-selling book. Tiffany, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you, Scott. I'm excited to be here. Hey, delighted to have you today. We've we've had about 160 episodes that we've taped over the course of the last three years with the On Leadership podcast for Franklin Covey. Now, the world's largest distributed subscribe to leadership podcast globally. Of those 160 interviews, three of them have been dedicated to what you might call personal finance. Uh, uh, Gene Chatsky, a mutual friend of both of ours, yeah. was our first guest on that topic. About six months ago, we hosted the, uh, uh, an amazing voice and personality expert, Chris Hogan. He was the second in our series, and today you are the third, because this is a topic that is near and dear to everyone's heart, including those leaders inside organizations, because we know when your team members, when your colleagues are stressed in their personal life, they bring that stress to their professional lives. And we all don't want to pay their bills for them, but we do <laughs> want to make sure that they have knowledge and information and practices to make sure that they have balance in their personal and professional life. And today, you're gonna to give us some more tips and wisdom as the world-renowned budget Nista. Mm -hmm. What I'd like to do is ask you a couple of questions first because before we get into the, 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 the art and science of personal finance, of which you are no doubt an expert, and this book is, um, I'm jealous of the number of, uh, of reviews you have on your Amazon book. <laughs> now, jealousy is a good thing because recently someone taught me that envy is kind of the, 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 the idea of wishing you didn't have what you have. Jealousy mm -hmm. is delighted that you had it and wish that I had it too. So I'm very jealous of all of your positive reviews on your book. What I'd like to do first, Tiffany, is talk about brand and influence. Mm -hmm. Because I think what you have modeled is what it takes to become influential, to build a brand. And as I mentioned before, there's no such thing as overnight success. Yeah. There's overnight fame. Some people have a, you know, accomplished overnight fame, usually not to their benefit, but there's no such thing as overnight success. By my calculations, for the last 13, 14 years, you have been carefully doing the hard work, raking, yes. planting, tilling, watering, fertilizing between your podcast, your writing, and your coaching. And now, for those who might think you've burst on the scene, you've been bursting on the scene for 13 years. Will you reorient yourself to our listeners and viewers on your journey to become what is now known as the global budget nista. Sure, Scott, and you're right. It's been a long, a long journey. Um, but honestly, one that's also been fun. Before I was the budget nista, I actually was a school teacher for ten years, all throughout my twenties, and I thought I'd be a school teacher forever. But behind being a school teacher, I was fascinated by personal finance. My father was a CFO of a small nonprofit. He had his bachelor's in economics masters in finance and he and my mom taught my four sisters and I about money all the time so even though I was teaching I was still the go-to for my friends and family when it came to personal finance so as a teacher I would actually help parents with their personal finances I would volunteer at the boys and girls club I would volunteer at my local church and so it just became something that I did on the side then the Great Recession, which I'm always like, why do they call it the Great Recession? It's not great. <laughs> it happened. <laughs> I lost my job. 
And as I was rebuilding myself, rebuilding my own personal finances, people started to reach out to me because they remembered my volunteer work, me helping them before, and the Budget Nista was born. So you more than just lost your job, you lost your home. And we're gonna talk about that in a few moments because I thought your vulnerability mm -hmm. was such a strong asset in the book, right? You taught through your messes in the yes. hopes that others could also learn from your successes. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Your parents are from Nigeria originally, yes. which was yes. kind of coincidental because just a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed uh, the famous influencer, Emmanuel Acho, of course, the author of the book, Uncomfortable Conversation with a Black Man. His mm -hmm. journey, I did not know it fully until we met and became friends on the set. His parents are from Nigeria. He yes. is, you know, obviously the famous NFL player, author, speaker, coach. I saw him on a Lexus ad next week on the Ellen Show, I mean. <laughs> but what's interesting is you have very similar backgrounds and journeys because your parents both came from Nigeria. They both taught you, perhaps quite frankly, leadership lessons that perhaps a lot of American parents could learn from. I don't mean to compare you to Emmanuel, but in any other way in that, I think you've built an influence for yourself through probably a lot of the lessons your parents taught you. And the reason I draw this correlation because you open your book, you talk about a very powerful lesson your father taught you around ice cream and water. Could you kind of recapture that story and maybe talk about what was it like growing up with the values of, of Nigerian parents that had immigrated and built a life for you and your family here in the U.S.? Absolutely. So it's the very first story I can remember. And I kind of remember adjacent remember. I feel like I remember the retelling of the story yeah, and more sure. so the memory, right? But I was six years old. Um, I was obsessed with ice cream like so many little ones. But I was also obsessed with running water. I guess I liked the sound of it. So I would turn on the water in the kitchen, in the bathroom. And if you have little ones, it's easy to say, well, just turn it off. But I apparently would have a meltdown when you turned off my precious running water. So my parents are trying to figure out how do we stop this bad habit because water is not cheap. <laughs> and so one thing they knew that I loved was ice cream. And my parents, especially my dad, was really good at pairing what was important to him financially to what's important to me as a kid. And so because we didn't have much money, we would have to rotate ice cream days. And that meant on your day, only one of us would get ice cream and the West would have to go inside the house and get ice cream from the freezer. So you still got ice cream, just not the ice cream from the ice cream truck, which obviously was much more delicious. And so it was my day to get my ice cream. You got a dollar. I ran inside and I said, Daddy, today is my day. May I please have my dollar? And he pretended to pat his pockets. And he said, well, you know, the waterman just came and I had to give him my last dollar. And I asked who the waterman was. And he said, every time you run water, I have to pay him. And I didn't have my normal dollar. So I had to give him your ice cream day dollar. Needless to say, the meltdown was epic. Apparently, I cried myself to sleep, woke up, cried some more. <laughs> but my father then sat me down later and explained to me that we have to pay for the water. And if there's not enough money, then sometimes we have to use money from the other things that we want. And so it was really like kind of my first lesson, like, wait, what's really more important to me, Tiffany? Water or ice cream? And obviously, I chose ice cream. And I never, ever ran that water unnecessarily again. And so I didn't, you asked the question, Scott, what it was like growing up like that? I don't know, because I, I lived it, you know? I, I didn't know any different. It really wasn't until college that I got like the real aha. When my college roommate, we were both 17, we had, she had debt collectors that were calling our dorm room. 
And I remember being like, that collectors call dorm rooms or just call you in general? I called my father and he told me, yes, you know, that can happen. And he started to give me advice for her over the phone. And it turned out that her mother, who was a struggling single mother, had used her name to open up credit cards to help support herself and her family. I didn't even realize that that there's some parents that were struggling in that way. I mean, we didn't have a ton with five kids, but I couldn't imagine my father using my credit. And there's no judgment on her mother. She did what she thought she had to do. But it was like that, that was like the first time I realized that I grew up differently. And that was really the first time that I realized that I wanted to share what I learned at home with other people so they didn't have to struggle financially. But like all advice, it doesn't always uh, impact our entire decisions in our life because fast forward, you know, 20 years and you are a well-educated educator, you're a teacher. And according to you, the less great recession came upon us all (laughs) and it impacted you. Would you take a few minutes before we get into the book and future advice, would you maybe share with us in some detail the series of events that impacted you and in some ways kind of took you to a low in your life that allowed you then to pivot back and build what is this massive influence and brand now known as the Budget Nista. Talk a bit about uh, the downsizing of your role, the house, your parents, your budget, all that kind of thing. No, absolutely. It's got, I mean, everybody looks at me now. They're like, oh my gosh, Budget Nista, you don't know what it's like. I'm like, are you kidding me? I, almost every financial mistake you can think of, I have done. So into my mid-20s, I was financially perfect, but that's only because I literally did exactly what my parents told me. And then about 23, 24, I was like, I'm an adult. I'm going to make my own decisions, a.k.a. ruin my financial life. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I, my parents had paid mostly for undergrad, and, and, I, and I commuted. So the little bit of student loans I had left, I was able to pay off staying home for a year. I moved out with my older sister. Um, I got an apartment with her, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to save money and purchase a home. So I purchased a condo, and it was $220,000. What I didn't know is because who was reading the news and things like that, you know, or watching the news, that it was the top of the market. It was right before the bubble was about to burst on the housing market. I didn't know that. And I didn't ask my parents anything. I just told them, surprise, I'm closing next week. And they were like, wait, what? (laughs) I bought a condo. And then I was already in school getting my master's in education. Um, Because it was a private school, I didn't do the due diligence of looking for like a scholarship or a less expensive school. It ended up $52,000 in in student loan debt, which, I mean, you know, I got an education, but still now I've got the mortgage and I've got the student loan. And I said, let me add one more thing. Instead of asking my father with these two degrees in finance and economics, you know, I'm going to ask a friend of mine who looks wealthy if he can teach me to invest. So he turned it out to be a thief. And but he had like a nice car, a nice apartment, nice watch. And he told me to pull money off of my credit card. I didn't even know that was possible. It's called the cash advance and it's the worst. And I pulled money off my credit card to invest with him. He ended up running away with my money and getting me involved in a credit card scheme that left me $35,000 in credit card debt. So house, 220, student loans, 52,000, credit card debt, 35,000. And it was just around that time I was turning 27, 28 when I realized he wasn't gonna pay me back. He wasn't going to give me the money that he promised me. And then that's when the not so great recession hit in 2008. I was a little worried, but not really because I figured teachers didn't lose their jobs, but I was on a losing streak. So indeed, (laughs) I lost my job. So here I was 29, jobless, 
and almost basically $300,000 in debt. I ended up moving back home with my parents. I didn't even tell them. I just like brought a lamp home and then a couch and then my bed. <laughs> and they're like, are you, are you back home? I'm like, just temporarily. What I told them was I lost my job due to the, um, you know, the recession. So they were kind of like, oh, okay. But they didn't know about all the other things. I, because I was not finished losing, Scott, I rented out my house to another friend who proceeded to never pay me my rent on time. Stop, and so, stop. I love this phrase. Because I was not done losing, I then decided. So keep going with your friend in the rent, sorry. Yeah, so then it was, like, I honestly thought to myself, Tiffany, like, what's going on? Every mistake is digging you deeper in the hole. Because my friend did not pay me my rent on time, I drained my savings. And then when they still didn't get me my rent on time, I didn't want to lose my condo. I pulled all the money out of my retirement account. To, to save my condo only to lose it to foreclosure. So my bottom, 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 I was 30 years old, foreclosure. My 802 credit score was a 547. I owed like $300,000 in debt. I was back home in my middle school bed because my sister Lisa, who's the baby, was still, I, think, I believe she was still in high school. So she had my high school room, which was in the basement and had more space. And she was like, no, I live here now. <laughs> so, and I remember distinctly thinking, Scott, like, wait, I had more money the last time I slept in this bed. I think I was like 12 or 13 and I babysat. <laughs> I had more money at 12 or 13 than I do now at 30. Wow. And so that was my rock, rock, rock bottom. And um, and yeah, I it took me some time to, to, to let go of the shame. And that's when I started to build the Budget Nista from, from that rock bottom place. Tiffany, thank you for the uh, hilarious but painful details of that story because the fact of the matter is, of the millions of people that are watching and listening right now, everybody can relate to some part of that story. Not the mm -hmm. entire story, perhaps, but some part of that story, including me. Now, there's a silver lining in that story because later in life, you researched after desperately trying to find this man to get your money back, you learned that he, had, in fact, had been imprisoned for identity fraud. So there is a bit yes. of a, a, a silver lining in that. Let's fast forward a second. And through all your own life lessons, you began to kind of uh, reorient your life, your habits, your discipline, your outlook. You began coaching friends. People started asking you for advice and you began to develop this phenomenal podcast and all, the, all your writings and your influences that have now resulted in this book, Get Good With Money. Yes. People ask me all the time, Scott, you wrote a leadership book. Aren't there enough leadership books out there? Well, I hadn't read the book that I needed to read, so I wrote the book that I needed to read. I'm guessing you also wrote the book that your previous self needed to read. Share with our listeners and viewers your biggest insights, the mistakes that people make over and over again that with perhaps a different mindset or different behavior set could be avoided. What are the biggest pitfalls you see people making that prevent them from getting good with money? So one of the biggest things is something that I put a name to and I call it financial wholeness that what I see is that everyone is chasing financial freedom, which is a good thing. You have enough money not to have to work anymore. You are free from having to work. But financial wholeness to me is a strong financial foundation. In a world of GameStop and Bitcoin, I am budget savings, debt, and credit. And it doesn't mean I don't believe, obviously I, I invest. But my biggest concern is that not enough people had the fundamentals. And I was looking, thinking about it, Scott, I'm like, look, 
If I look at, I taught preschool, so that's the fundamentals of education. Because if I can teach you to read and, and to letter shapes, colors, numbers, then you can go on to the rest of your educational life. The same thing for personal finance. So many of us skip over the fundamentals, try to go for this higher level. And then because we don't have a strong fundamental foundation, when the going gets tough, everything comes crashing down. And that's what happened to me. And so I said, I didn't want that for myself or other folks. So I wrote a book that walks you through these the 10 core components of your financial fundamentals that I like to call financial wholeness. And so that's why I wrote this book because it walks you through exactly how to, to, to work on your budget, savings, debt, credit, learning to earn, investing for both retirement and wealth, life, how to get insurance, net worth, your financial team and estate planning. Those are your core 10 fundamentals. And after you're done with that, you, the world is your oyster as it relates to your money. Tiffany, I know for the last 30, 40 years, the, the big influencers in personal finance, in my opinion, have tended to be Caucasian, right? You had Bruce Williams 30 years ago, had one of the biggest radio programs. Of course, you've got you know, Susie Orman and Gene Chatsky and Dave Ramsey, of course. And I, I wonder how much of your motivation was to help people of color perhaps get a better sense of education and control around their personal finance. Was that important to you? No, absolutely, because I know that I was fortunate that I grew up in a household the way I grew up. But I know that's also not typical for anyone, no matter what color or race you are. But especially for black and brown households, financial education is something I wanted to normalize, you know, because if you knew better, you could indeed do better. There is a racial wealth gap you know, that separates black households, especially from, from what white households make. And I, and I thought to myself, if there was a way to give the education necessary to help close that gap, it would transform everything. Because if you know how to manage your money better, that helps your family, that helps your neighborhood, that helps your community, that helps the culture, that helps move the country forward. So absolutely, I wanted to be like, um, I wanted to fill in the gap because I did not see myself. Even the fact that I'm, I'm on the cover of my book, honestly, Scott, I was nervous to be on the cover of my book because I thought, are people who are non-Black people gonna buy this book? Because I also wanted to make sure that it reached people who needed it, sure. period. But thankfully my publisher, insisted and they said especially you need to be on the cover because there needs to be more representation we need to normalize financial education is for everyone well you look good girl so it was a smart decision <laughs> i bought two copies of the book let's get practical save like a squirrel that's one of the themes that you popularize in your writings uh, expand on that so uh, squirrels are super savvy so i live in new jersey we have a ton of squirrels and in the spring, in the summer, when acorns are bound, squirrels understand that they need to work the hardest and also save the most. And when winter comes, squirrels understand that that is when they are meant to live off of that hard work that they previously put in. Human beings are, are, are the opposite. When things are good, that's when we're like, oh, we spend the most and we kind of relax the most because we already have this natural momentum. And so I'm wanting to flip that on its head and say, you know, are you in the peak of your career? Are you making the most money? Lean in and put up as much as you can during this time so you can relax during your financial winter because financial winter comes for all of us. And so that's what Save Like a Squirrel is all about. I teach you how to do so. 
You know, a few weeks ago, my wife and our three sons were renting a house down in Phoenix, Arizona, while we were in between home sale and purchase in Salt Lake City. We went down for 10 days. My wife and our youngest son flew down and flew back, and I drove the two oldest sons down and back. And on the way back, our car broke down in the middle of the Arizona desert. Actually, a new expensive car broke down. We kind of limped into Las Vegas, and over the course of the next day, our car got uh, towed into a uh, car dealership. We tried to rent a car. Well, try renting a car in the middle of Las Vegas during spring break. It's nearly impossible. <laughs> so my son and I, my two sons and I and two dogs are driving around Las Vegas trying to find rental cars and perhaps at a hotel. And it was interesting because, you know, after 50 years of life and, you know, a couple of decades of being successful, my wife and I have earned a comfortable living, but, you know, money's not abundant. But I'm telling you that the lessons that my sons learned by watching me having options, we could yes. rent a new car, we could yep. fly back, we could stay in a hotel for a day or two. It was really instructive to have my two sons, who were then nine and 11, look at their dad to say, you know what, we've prepared for this, right? I mean, yes. we don't live beyond our means, we have some luxuries, we have some savings, but it was really a helpful, instructive 24 hours watching my sons watch me solve the problems. I could yes. solve the problems because I had access to credit. I had access to cash. Yes. I could do things. I wasn't out on a limb. To your point, you know, the habits that we demonstrate have a massive impact on our children. No, absolutely. Because what you were showing them is this is what financial wholeness looks like when you have adhered to more than just one aspect of your financial life. You know, because it, it allows you, as your, to your point, to have options. I try to teach folks that money is a tool. Think about a hammer. I asked somebody the other day, you know, is a hammer good or bad? They were like, neither. Exactly. Neither is money. That you get to decide what the money's going to do based upon what you choose. Just like that hammer. You can use that hammer to destroy someone's house. You can use that hammer to build someone's house. You get to choose. And so when you make positive choices with your tool, then you have options. Money is not the goal itself. It's what can it help you to achieve. Tiffany, let's talk about credit cards. And I don't mean yes or no. You mm -hmm. know, a friend of mine is Dave Ramsey, and he's very much uh, uh, well known on record as against credit cards. None of his employees mm -hmm. have credit cards. I think it might even be a condition of working for his company. But I think there are a lot of conditions to work for Dave Ramsey's company, different podcast. But let's talk about the correlation between credit cards and credit scores, right? Everyone has a FICO score. You talk about uh, how to manage your FICO score uh, in the book. But I think there's a lot of misconceptions around, is it good to have open credit on your cards? Is that spending power? Does that, is that seen as potential debt? to creditors and your score is lowered. What have you learned around kind of the magic ratio of how many cards should you have? What kind of balance, if any, should you have? Not from a, not from a philosophical standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. No, is, none is the answer there, but what correlation does debt on credit cards and open available credit have on your credit score? So the more open available credit you have, quite honestly, the better. Sometimes people get so like um, worked up about credit and I'm like, let's take a step back and pretend we're like, we're not talking about credit. We're just talking about a person. My sister wants to borrow money from me, but she owes my sister, baby sister, Lisa, out of the five of us, she owes the oldest Karen money. She owes Tracy right below me money. She owes Carol money. Lisa, of all the credit that she has available to her, which is her four sisters, she already owes three of us. So now I'm looking at her as a risk. 
she already is almost maxed out. So it's the same thing with your credit cards. You want to have as much available credit open because one, it looks like, hmm, you're not in some sort of financial trouble, but also it looks like that you have space that if Lisa didn't owe any of my sisters, I know that I'm likely to be paid back. At the end of the day, your creditors and the people that lend you money want to know, am I likely to be paid back? The less you owe, the more likely you are to pay them back. Thank you. So it's actually not true that the more open credit you have, the credit agencies see that as ability to spend. If it's open, you're not spending it, so they think you're more likely to pay it back. Yeah, because you don't, it's not a liability, meaning that, well, it, it, there's, there are moments, let's just say you have a credit card and you've never used it. Then the credit card company indeed might close it because they're in the business of making money. Yeah. They're like, Scott, you're not using your card. What are we doing here? You know, like, I'm going to close it because you're not using it. But no, really the, the magic number is 30% when it comes to your credit card. So if you have, let's just pretend this is a credit card, you have a $100 credit card limit. And ideally you want to keep your balance under $30, so under 30%. And so 30% will allow you to maintain your current credit score. But if you keep it under 15%, you can see your credit score raise. If you keep it under 10%, you'll see your credit score raise even higher. If you pay it off in full every month, you'll see your credit score really go up. And so the less you owe on your card, the better. It's okay to use it, but ideally you want to use it and pay it off in full. And even when you do use it, ideally keeping it under 30% of the limit that they've allotted to you. Tiffany, expand on this idea around managing your credit score, which is kind of you know, next to your soul and reputation, probably one of your most valuable assets in life, right, is your credit score. What are the variables that contribute to people's credit scores? We know, we so know about the, the amount you owe, but talk about the different variables that impact your credit score. So there's inquiries, that means new credit. How much new credit have you brought into your life? That's 10%. There's also credit mix. Do you have revolving debt, which are credit card debt, credit card debt? Do you also have installment loans, which is when like just a regular loan, like say like a student loan, you owe a lump sum and you paid off in installments. That's another 10 percent. We just talked about, um, well, length of credit history is 15 percent. How long have you been using credit? They like to see you've had some some time and some skin in the game. 30 percent of your score is amounts old, which we just went over your utilization and 35% of your score is payment history. Do you pay on time? Do you pay at least a minimum or more? These five components really make up your credit score, but the last two, how much you owe compared to how much you could owe and payment history make up the biggest component. That's 65% of your score. Yeah. So pay down your debt consistently. And honestly, I like to have a separate checking account, um, call my bills account, and then automate my payments that way so I never forget to pay pay my debt. Superb advice. Let's pivot to insurance for a moment. Uh, uh, my wife is a full-time stay-at-home mom and manager of our business and all of our personal lives, my, our three sons and I, and I'm the sole um, earner. So we have a lot of insurance. I mean, we have, you know, we have, we have homeowner's insurance, we have life insurance, we have disability insurance, we have an umbrella plan, we have, of course, have medical insurance. And uh, I'm guessing a lot of people are probably underinsured. I might actually be overinsured, but if for the for the for the common person listening to this, that perhaps there's one or two incomes, regardless, what type of insurance mix would you recommend? And is there an area of insurance that most people forget about and could come back to be devastating to them? So 
Absolutely. Most people are underinsured. Up until a couple of years ago, I was underinsured. So one, um, if you have children, you especially if they're minor children, you absolutely want some sort of life insurance. Um, I prefer term because it's, it's 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 more affordable, and quite yeah. honestly, I don't believe that insurance is an investment. Plan. I agree. I prefer term. You know? also. yes. You know, so plus you can you can afford way more. So you're you're wanting life insurance if you have children or if you have a debt that you're going to leave behind. Truly, life insurance. Those companies have done a very good job of marketing. You know, as a CMO. Right, because they have marketed that insurance um, in a way that they're like, oh, get your baby life insurance. I'm like, well, is the baby paying bills? If something unfortunately should happen to the baby, will will there be debt left behind as a result? No, life insurance is there to protect your earning years. So if you're not there, your income is still there for your family. Or if you're not there and you owe debt, your family can take care of that debt. If you don't have debt, and you don't have um, um, a family or you don't have dependents that you don't necessarily need to start paying life insurance. So that's one. Two, to consider you're definitely wanting some uh, insurance to wherever you're dwelling. Homeowners insurance, I mean, in most states it is mandatory, but also renters insurance, it's fairly inexpensive. So you're going to want to cover, you know, like um, not all insurance, like if you are renting someone's home, they might have homeowners insurance, but you might not be covered under there. So you're wanting to look into to, to um, insurance to cover wherever it is that you live. You might wanna consider too pet insurance. I know it sounds so like for me, I don't have any pets, but I've had a number of friends whose pets became very ill and they had to decide this is an expensive procedure. What do I do? You could know, be, could be five, eight, ten thousand dollars I hear about yep, this frequently. For, yep, a friend of mine, it was $5,000. She spent it and the cat still passed a few weeks later. So she was devastated on both fronts. But pet insurance is, is critical if you have an animal that you have that you are taking care of health insurance obviously this is something that everybody should have no matter your age you know if you're young enough you might be under your parents but health insurance is a is a critical insurance especially in the united states should something happen to you, you want to be able to cover you know um being able to being able to be taken care of and as you get older you start to look at jobs based upon sometimes more so health insurance yeah. than what they pay because it's just that important your health insurance um, you might want to also consider disability. If you um, are become ill and you can no longer work, my husband a few years ago had an aneurysm and um, he was out of work for some months and he had disability insurance. So it allowed us to, to continue despite the fact that he wasn't able to work and now he's back 100%. So disability is something uh, to consider as well. There is, there are so, this is what insurance is for. It is there to help to protect you and your assets you know insurance is, is what if so car insurance pet insurance there are a great like online calculators where you can kind of put in your life and it will tell you what kind of insurance you might need and just like you scott i've got umbrella insurance because i have several businesses i've yes. grown you know like a, a good amount of money so, so as a result i was underinsured and here's the secret of insurance it's a huge leverage tool i want you to think of like like a doorknob a, a little doorknob can move a huge door, you know? Same thing as with insurance. When my certified financial planner said she wanted me to get a million dollar umbrella policy, I was like, oh, Anjali, how much is that gonna cost us? $400 for the year. I was like, oh. <laughs> so insurance allows you to have access to all this protection. And typically, depending what kind of insurance you get, the, the fee required is not as much as you think. So don't let insurance pass you by. That's why it's a critical component in, in the book that I wrote. 
Speak to the younger listeners that are perhaps just starting their careers or they're in the first decade of their career. Are there any like non-negotiables that you want to say to, you know, Andrew out there who's 25 years old, he's two years into his job and he's going to work, you know, 40 plus years ahead of him. What should Andrew be doing tomorrow for he and his wife and their one-year-old baby to make sure that he's building good financial habits to protect his family? What are the three or four or five things you want Andrew to know as he's starting his career? Andrew, first and foremost, live under your means. I cannot express it enough. There's no magic about that. You make 10, ideally you want to live at seven, you know, because there's no, you cannot get ahead if you're spending more than you make. So you have to figure out a way to live under your means. So that's one. Two, with that, the living under your means, you're wanting to save, you know, but saving is just the beginning. But you want to make savings a habit that with every pay period, every paycheck, Andrew, you are saving. Three, investing. The reason why, it's what, what people don't understand, they think like budgeting full stop. No, literally the purpose of budgeting, the purpose of savings, like the true purpose is to get to a point where you can invest because you're not going to budget and save your way to growing wealth you know, for yourself and your family. So you have to invest, investing for both retirement, which is mandatory. And you, if you might want to also invest for wealth, which is optional, investing for retirement means that you are gonna, are gonna be able to maintain your current lifestyle when you're no longer working, when you're older. Investing for wealth means you get to increase your current lifestyle and leave a legacy. So you're going to want to invest first and foremost, setting aside for retirement. We want to max out retirement, and then you want to look into investing for wealth if you so, so choose. So those are three things, right? I said budget, save, invest. And then four, I know everybody's like, um, people think that you don't necessarily need credit, but unfortunately, not to say you don't need credit. I don't necessarily, you don't have to have credit cards, but you do need credit in the U.S. of A. To your point, Scott, you were looking that you wanted your car broke down and you were looking to rent a car. It's going to be really hard to rent a car without credit. You know, that's just something that they ask for. Sometimes they'll let you use a debit card, but there are some instances where you're going to have to have credit in order to move forward. There are even some jobs that will that are going to look at your credit. My one of my mentees is an attorney and credit was something they looked at. So, you you know, I wouldn't be obsessive over it, but maintain decent credit, Andrew, form. And then um, five, I would say not to remember that money is a tool, yes, to create security but it's also meant to be enjoyed. Don't get so wrapped up in the, the nitty gritty, the, 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 you know, the, the ledger that you don't infuse joy. Are you going on vacation? You know, do your children want to learn karate? You know, are you and your wife getting date nights to infuse using money to, to infuse some joy into your life as well? Tiffany, as we conclude our conversation on the cover of your book, which of course is an amazing cover. I love the story about how you and your publisher went back and forth and I think you won because uh, you look uh, fabulous <laughs> and your book is phenomenal. You're wearing some bracelets. I think I counted nine of these green bracelets. And for those of you that aren't watching us, you can see Tiffany's showing now these <laughs> nine green bracelets. What's that about? So these bracelets I came up with years ago, because as I was trying to teach people how to think about their money, I thought, huh, if I was teaching preschool, I used to have visual prompts to teach the kids. And so I remember distinctly, remember when Livestrong came out with Lance Armstrong, yes. he had these yellow bracelets. And I thought, what if I could have a bracelet to remind you about your spending priorities in order? So the bracelets say, need is greater than love, 
Love is greater than like. Like is greater than want. These are the four questions, Scott, you ask yourself before you spend any money. Do I need it? Do I love it? Do I like it? Do I want it? Need, food, shelter, clothing, water, must-haves to be healthy and safe. Love, loves give you lasting joy. A year from now, will this purchase still bring you joy? You went to Greece, you still remember how amazing that vacation is? That's a love, right? Your favorite book you picked up? That's a love. Likes give you temporary joy. So that's something like, oh, maybe you're not really a foodie, but you had brunch and it was nice. Six to three to six months from now, you still remember, but not beyond. And want just give you instant satisfaction. I have a lip gloss obsession. I buy them and then I lose them. <laughs> and so that's just a want. So I'm wanting that when you're spending money, you remind yourself, you pull it out with your money spending hand. Is this a need, a must have? Is this a love lasting joy? Is this merely a like or a want? And it doesn't mean you can't get your likes or wants, but I want you to spend more consciously and spend more on your needs and loves than you do your likes and wants. Tiffany Liche, known globally as the Budget Nista. Your book is Get Good With Money, 10 Simple Steps to Become Financially Whole. What a delight that you joined the Franklin Covey On Leadership podcast. Although typically reserved for leadership topics, today you hit a home run because we know that in order for you to be a leader in your family, in your home, in your life with others, you have to model what you want other people to do as well, including your spouse, your partners, and your kids. Thank you so much for joining us today. What is next on the horizon for you? So what's next on the horizon for me is potentially a show. You know, people are tapping me on the shoulder, so we shall see. Um, I wrote a children's book a year ago called Happy Birthday, Molly Moore. Um, and so I'm just working on the second the second um, book. It's kind of like my little pet project since I used to be a teacher and I, I wanted to teach financial education to the babies as well, like age appropriate financial education. And honestly, just like enjoying life, I, I really love teaching. So the more I can teach and reach, just, just more of that. Well, in fact, you teach a lot. Talk a bit about your podcast. You also have a online education course. Speak to both of those, if you will. Sure. So I, I have this awesome podcast called Brown Ambition. Me and my podcast host, Mandy, we really talk about like our lives and we infuse our financial choices into those into those conversations. And we help you to to make decisions about career, about business, about money. Um, in my online school, Literature Academy, we have 40,000 students that take their financial level, financial education to the next level. I have all these other instructors that teach you how to invest, how to buy real estate, how to start a nonprofit, how to dress for success. So any finance or financial adjacent thing you can think of, we teach inside of the Literature Academy joyfully. Um, so yeah, I just, honestly, I'm just really excited, Scott, because I just feel like there's another level that I'm ascending to, and I just can't wait to see like where it leads me. We love to, uh... We love to provide our platform to up and coming authors and influencers, and we're delighted you joined us today. We're excited to see where you go as well. We will follow you, and if uh, there's a time to bring you back back on the show and the podcast, we'll do so as well. Thank you, Tiffany. No, thank you. Thanks, everybody. The book is Get Good With Money. The Budget Nista is Tiffany Liche. Delighted that she joined us today. We continue to think at Franklin Covey, financial literacy is so important as leaders, leaders not just in our personal lives, but in our professionalized because you know what everyone's bringing their whole self to work today right they're bringing their private life their their personal life their secret life they're bringing their 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 passions their fears their joys and as a leader we know we want to be there for our people to know they have a safe space at work also 
to, to build the great habits. And if you can invest in your people, I think Tiffany is a great coach and mentor to do that as well. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you back here next week for a new interview on leadership.